Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Ramani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? I have been thinking about food to some extent. I'm always thinking about food because I like it. But the writer and journalist Larissa Zimberhoff has just written a new book called Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. And this book is fascinating. It's about all the new ways that Silicon Valley and the tech industries are coming up with to change our diets to more of a plant-based sustainable diet. But the writer's actually a diabetic, so she's super into like checking all the labels and everything. Since she was a child, she had to really examine what she's been eating. So she's taking that same approach to all the new foods that we're getting. So for example, pea protein milk and plant-based butter made of cashew protein and oil or of course these new Beyond Meat Impossible Foods burgers things like that and she's really looking into what exactly is it made of she has quite a critical eye and her thing is as a diabetic she notices how important food is to her health and the way that her body functions she knows that the primary function of the food industry is obviously to make money and sell us more food. So it's up to all of us as consumers to examine what's good for ourselves and look after our own interests. And it's kind of interesting her perspective because Silicon Valley normally says, or all of these utopian startups are saying, number one, sustainability, number two, it's really good for you, plant-based diet. But she's just taking her own critical eye on this. And it's just a super fascinating topic. And it highlights a lot of stuff that I never thought about ever before. I really like the name Technically Food because she sort of talks about how the tech industry is honing in on the food industry. And then that pun of like, oh, I guess it's food. Very smart, very clever. I like it. As you were just talking then, and I know that this is kind of what you said, I just had this moment where I was like, actually, how ridiculous is it is that capitalism has forced its way into every aspect of our lives that food is a thing we need to survive. It's been so intensely commodified. Yeah, and the reason for most of our environmental problems right now is to do literally with how we eat, how we farm, what we're eating. If we could all stop eating meat would be great for the environment, but also just farming, industrialization of our entire food processes. Yeah, and I think that that's the big issue with the meat industry, isn't it? Because from a personal perspective, as someone who doesn't eat meat, I don't think that eating meat is inherently wrong, but I disagree with the meat industry because it's the mass production and the industry aspect of it that are harmful to the environment. So naturally, I'm critical of any sort of new meat alternative, because especially this like lab-grown meat, something about that doesn't quite sit right with me. But when I think about all this lab-grown meat, is it the Impossible Burger and all this stuff? It used to be known as in vitro meat, and then it underwent a PR campaign to be rebranded as clean meat. And that to me is the epitome of the problem that this new type of food is going to be facing. Because can you really exist within a capitalistic society and have a good social cause at heart. I keep thinking of that thing that Noam Chomsky says, you know, he says like some problems are so immediate that we have to work within the existing framework. 
in order to solve them. And he specifically cites climate change as the issue. He says, we don't have time to fix our corrupt world and then save the planet. But is creating fake meat or using algae to make bars really the way to save the world if the company's doing it either because everyone still has to make money we still have to sell things so can saving the world and capitalism coexist in that way i think the algae thing is super interesting the thing about this book is that she does interview a lot of different people who have a lot of different motives and there are some really cool people in it who are actually doing really cool things like algae could be a really cool solution to a lot of stuff. But don't you think that if we... Because she talks about how algaes are responsible for 50% of the oxygen that we use, which is super important. They're farming algae. And the second that I hear that, oh, we're farming something that's natural, so it's going to lead to mass production. So we're not actually going to solve the issue of what the meat industry does. We're just going to apply it to a different industry, right? Because even if you're farming algae, it's still going to take up certain amount of water, certain amount of electricity. Like, there's still going to be ramifications for our planet. So how can we eliminate that? Are we just going to replace one evil with another? Algae is really super interesting because if we do figure out how to grow algae and use it, it can even help the environment. Like, the idea of eating algae has been around since, I don't know, 1950s sci-fi and stuff like that. And actually, archaeological evidence shows that it has been part of the human diet for thousands of years, so it could really work. If it were the alternative, and if everyone switched to eating algae, it would be way better. Some species of algae are so high in protein that meat, milk, eggs, and soybeans kind of pale in comparison, and it doesn't need that much nutrient inputs. It can even, like, fuel your car. The only problem is that actually nobody has figured out yet how to use it properly and there are loads of startups trying to figure out how to do a proper industrial production. I kind of know what you mean though. Like I think overall it would probably be better. I think algae is different. Like she goes into a lot of different kinds of foods. I can see that with meats grown in a lab. Like how many labs do you need? How much resources do you need? Another example she goes into is mycelium, which is the basis of corn, for example, in the supermarkets and a meat substitute. It's basically a fungi, so a mushroom, and it's grown in a mixture of nutrients, including sugar, nitrogen, phosphorus, in these big tanks. And it just thickens and fills up these tanks really fast. Like in 18 hours, these strands of mycelium fill up a thousand liter fermentation tank. And from one tank, one of these startups, which is Emergy, can create 80 to 100 pounds of finished product in a day. And it's a process that uses 90% less land and water than the equivalent factory farm. But yeah, there's also, for example, there's a lot of pea and rice protein that's being used. And she goes into like one case, if we think about the industrialization to make this alternative, the peas are grown in North America. The rice, a smaller component of the blend, comes from India or China. And then both crops are harvested and shipped by boat to Chutsu, China, where they're processed into components. And then the protein is sent back in shipping containers, first by boat to the US, then by train cargo to Colorado, then processed by microtechnology in its giant tanks. And after that, it's delivered to Plantera, where it's turned into meat, packaged, boxed up, sent to distribution centers around the country by refrigerated trucks. 
And after that, it's stocked into meat aisles at your local supermarket. Yeah, I mean, if you think about all of that production, it's replacing it, but I guess it's the same, same in a way. And also the other thing is about burgers. A burger is one of those things, like sausages and burgers. It's, it's replacing a processed food with another processed food. And like in the 80s, she goes into this in the book, there were all these margarine and Wonder Bread. And they were embraced in this era. And her question in this book is, are we embracing all of this new amazing food that is supposed to be better for us, supposed to be better for the planet? Are we doing it all over again, but we're just replacing fake food with more fake food? And it's not really addressing the fundamental problem, like you say, which is a lack of proper connection and living in a way that's sustainable with our ecosystem. And I think it's also worth noting that a lot of these, there's obviously going to be tiny food startups that are coming into this with really, really good intentions. What does it mean when all of these alternative meats or socially conscious foods are actually made by some of the biggest big meat companies? Mm -hmm. The investors are in, in a lot of these companies, you know, it's like Peter Thiel, Bill Gates. And what's so interesting, which really stood out for me in the book, is that all of these people are investing in technology as if technology is the answer. So every single food that now is created, for example, if we came up with a really great sort of vegetarian burger in in our kitchen, you and I, and we put like beetroot juice and mushrooms and tomatoes and made it, Nobody would invest in our company, not because we're not great chefs, but because there's not a technological element, which is hacking something biologically in some way. So the reason that all of these people are investing in tech, first of all, tech people are investing in tech because they believe in tech and that's its own thing. And then also because the tech is a differentiator and that's what leads to like branding and the next new thing. And there's a big emphasis on the next new thing. And in this book, there's a great, 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 amazing story about mayo. It's about how this really young cocky founder from Just Eat, which then after a lot of PR changed its name to Eat Just, which is ridiculous. But anyway, he came up with this new mayo without eggs and everyone went on about it. Forbes covered it. Lots of journalists covered it. He promised that he was going to make the egg obsolete. But nobody even Google searched for the fact that veganese had existed for years before, since the 70s or something. And also all the big companies also had egg-free mayonnaise. But just the fact that it's new kind of got all this traction and all this press attention and buzz around it. And he's got a lot of funding and he's now a big company. And these are the companies that are going to be the next companies that kind of replace, I guess, big food, as she calls it. Actually, I was reading a Washington Post article. And this is kind of fascinating. This goes back to the idea that the same companies who sell the meat will then also sell the non-meat options. This article specifically looks at prices and it says, A pound of ground beyond meat is down to about 570. Beef prices are up 3.3% from a year ago. Mean ground beef costs between 4.10 and $6, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Impossible Food has cut its restaurant prices twice in the past year, and in February, the company cut retail prices by 20%, bringing the price of two quarter-pound patties down to $5.49. We plan to keep lowering prices as we achieve new production records and economies of scale and ultimately undercut the price of ground beef from cows, said Impossible Food president Dennis Woodside in an email. The irony is big meat and massive agri-businesses are driving down prices for plant-based products. 
Bets. Hedging their bets, Smithfield, Purdue, Hormel, Tyson, and other huge meat retailing companies have jumped into the fray. The price of Tyson's raised and rooted spicy plant-based nuggets also inched down 24% during the pandemic. Plus, food processing giants such as Archer, Daniel, Midland are developing hundreds of different prototypes to fine-tune and customize to customers' needs, said Wendy Van Buren, the global commercial growth leader of alternative proteins for ADMA. Her mission is to make products that are more accessible to customers, meaning cheaper. So essentially, what's happening is, is that the price of plant-based meat are going down, as are the price of the actual meat, but because most of these massive companies own both, all the money is still flowing into the same place. Another thing that's really interesting, and she also asked this question in the book, is a lot of the times you'll see, because sales are going up for plant-based alternatives, but in the supermarkets you'll see the, for example, normal milk, and then you'll see the plant-based alternative, and the labeling is such that it looks a bit like a very similar product, and it's not so clearly labeled what the difference is. So are a lot of people just either picking it up for experimentation or also just picking it up because they think it's the same thing or by mistake. And should pea-based milk even be called milk? But then soya milk was always called soya milk for ages before. But is cashew-based butter actually butter? What is happening with our labeling? It's super mm. important. And like in this book, it's amazing. A lot of stuff is called natural flavorings. She goes into what that is and it's mind-blowing. But you just think, oh, natural flavorings. Or you think, oh, wild yeast. You don't think something scooped out of a stomach of a wasp and grown in a lab somewhere. So the namings, like you were saying, of clean meat and everything. Marketing. Yeah. And I think we need to really look beyond, like she does in this book, really look beyond those surface names into what actually the product is how it's made and all that i keep thinking about how wasn't it almond milk that was like hailed as the big alternative and then it turns out that almond milk is really bad for the environment and we just keep going through these like weird cycles of finding new solutions to environmental crisis and then it always turns out oh actually that's bad for the environment too but even the other thing is that a lot of things that like beyond meat burgers it's made out of a lot of stuff and it's not nutritionally great for you it's maybe a little bit better than a normal meat burger but the advertising slogans are all like better for you better for the planet so you're being made to feel like you're responsible for the planet animal welfare and all of that but it's a kind of clever bit of marketing yeah before we were talking about the lab-grown burger and I don't think I would eat that. I'm so grossed out by that concept. Not just because I wouldn't eat meat, but for some reason, meat grown in a lab does not sit right with me. Really? Yeah. Would you eat it? I would eat it over an animal, although I'm not interested in either. Yeah. I think maybe that's it. One, it feels kind of weird to eat something out of a lab because I associate it with like science class and I'm like, mm, no, that's not good for consumption. And also because I actually don't have any desire to eat animals. I don't really need a substitute. I'm happy with halloumi burgers. It's interesting though, because I think we are getting more and more out of touch with our food. Mm, how so? Well, it's all nicely packaged in a supermarket. It's all clean. When you see a burger in the supermarket, you don't necessarily think about the animal in the field that it comes from and how the animal smells and how it's made and the flesh. You just It's nicely packaged for us. And I think maybe a new generation of people who are used to that nice packaging, you know, 
because more and more people are growing up in cities and not in farms and out of touch with, you know, how the food supply chain works and all that kind of stuff. I think they might actually prefer and think it's cleaner and more hygienic, especially with coronavirus and everything right now. Everyone's obsessed with hygiene. It has been shown that all of our current meat factories and stuff have failed miserably during coronavirus. So hygienically, I think people might actually go for the lab and think Mm. not that it's experimentation, but it's just clean and everything's made nicely and it's extra level of separation from the food source. Have you ever had fresh cow's milk? No. It's warm. Super warm and super thick and creamy. It tastes nothing like the milk that you get in the grocery store. So there is already this weird level of separation because it's gone it's gone through such a process. Yeah, I wanted to make mozzarella recently, and here in Germany you can get raw milk, which is unpasteurized to do that. But I do this cooking thing with people in England. Impossible to buy unpasteurized milk in the supermarket because it's a health it's, risk. Yeah, and I think it's the over sterilization of food in general. But then on the other hand, she goes into a, a lot of things in the US where a lot of these products, Silicon Valley is obviously the center for all of this innovation. She does point out that drugs and the development of new medicines and stuff is actually more strongly regulated than developments of new food because first you make the thing and then retroactively the FDA might look at it and try and impose its thing but by then it exists. She cites this really great example where she says that baby food contains some super harmful ingredients that were added in as preservatives and to taste better to mothers so that the mom would try and be like oh yeah this tastes really good and that what is it, like a lawsuit had to take place for the FDA to get involved somehow and even then they didn't ban it or something? It took years for them to actually make a move on that which is super harmful for babies and then in the end they even kept it to some extent and said not for consumption for babies or something and the labelling was weird. It's so bizarre. So she writes that famous for getting seatbelts into cars, longtime consumer advocate Ralph Nader is also known for having cleaned up baby food in the 70s. Nader's problem was the manufacturers was putting additives, modified food starch and MSG, monosodium glutamate, into infant formula. Companies weren't doing this for the baby's health, which could potentially be harmful with high levels of glutamate. They added it so it tastes better to mothers, prolong its shelf life, improve solubility, which makes it easier to mix. At issue for Nader was that the FDA wasn't proactive, it was reactive. The burden of discovering problems in our food supply, he said, was left to researchers outside the industry. It's been 50 years since the regulatory fight. Eventually, the FDA banned MSG from baby food, but it hedges its bets and keeps company happy. It declared it fit for human consumption, but not necessarily by infants. The moral of the story is that this is happening with the new food companies. The FDA still works reactively, and food companies are still getting away without proactive confirmation of food safety. And on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Check out and read Larissa Zimbaoff's new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. It's a really great book. It's super interesting and informative. Thing two, like Larissa... Read the labels of what you are buying. Read the nutrition facts. In fact, only 33% of people actually read what they're eating. So don't be distracted by buzzwords and 
shiny packaging. And thirdly, it's actually true that we can make positive environmental impact when we do reduce our meat consumption. So try to eat meat-free, plant-based meals for at least some of your meals this week. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube. For news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references and other geeky inspiration, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.